Dear Lord, we thank you for this time to remember and to worship. Father, as we have done, as you have commanded, Lord, we invite you to open the eyes of our hearts this morning that we might receive from your word. Give us clarity and understanding. Give us hearts that are humble and open that we might receive from you. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. We'll be in the book of 1 Kings chapter 17 this morning. 1 Kings chapter 17. And I've entitled the sermon, Creating God in Your Own Image. That's certainly something that occurs in our culture today. And as we look at this, I was reading an article this week about uh, a virus infection that has affected over 13 million computers and people's personal finances. It's one of the largest networks ever busted. Uh, and it, uh, the network is believed to, again, have infected over 13 million computers and credit card numbers and personal data. The virus has been linked to computers at more than 40 banks and over half of the Fortune 500 companies. Uh, authorities are still unclear as to the uh, ultimate um, effect it will have on the industry and upon those whom have been affected. But they know this, that uh, this, these people, these three guys who were doing it, looked like everyday individuals. They meshed right into the culture and none of their friends had any idea. Well, today we live in a pluralistic society where it's difficult to tell sometimes what truth is, particularly if we're just doing it based upon what people think within the culture. The truth of it is, is mankind are pretty much a lot of experts were saying up till about 20 years ago that we were going to be living soon in a post-religious culture, a post-religious society because of the technology, because of the intellectualism that man was evolving to a state where he would no longer lead religion or spirituality. But it's interesting, over the last 20 years, just the opposite happened, even in the United States and Western Europe. The very opposite has occurred. People uh, will now uh, associate themselves with some type of faith or spirituality more than any other time in the history of our nation. Now, what's interesting about that is no longer is it assumed that that's Christianity. That's not the assumption anymore. Matter of fact, many people have many different belief systems. Uh, we live in a society where there are new religions, so to speak, or new types of faith being invented all the time. And so when you ask people, particularly who are college and in their 20s, Yes, almost everyone is spiritual, so to speak. It really has become more of a matter of taste, though, than a matter of truth. Many people will ascribe to a God who is one who is loving and kind and grace-oriented, and that's the God I want. That's the God I take. While others maybe come from a more rigid background, and they'll say, it's a God of judgment, he's a God of sovereignty, and that's my God. And so many times, if we're not careful, we'll just simply concoct a God in our mind, won't we? It's what a lot of people are doing today. They're creating the God that meets their palate, that is okay with their taste. So the question is not, 
whether people have a faith or a religion or a spirituality, it's which faith? That's the real question that needs to be asked today. Even people who are agnostic or atheist, we, now the Pew, the Pew uh, Forum has found that uh, 20% of those people pray, although they're not sure to who. So even atheists really have a faith because you're saying, you know what? I believe that this is all there is. There's not a God, and if there is a God, He no longer is involved with my life or with the lives of those on earth, and I'm going to stake my life on that principle. I'm going to live by that philosophy. And I'm, going to, I'm going to live by the thought that, you know what, this is it. And I'm just going to put my faith in myself or in my belief system. So you see, that actually is a belief system itself. And I would even argue that it takes greater faith to take that position than to believe that there actually is a God. So as we look at this and as we look at this chapter here, uh, you're really going to see pluralism at its greatest uh, level in, in, uh, in Israel's history. And so that's why we're going to look at this passage here in just a moment. Matter of fact, uh, just a little bit of biblical background on this passage. This is the 8th century B.C., and the king of Israel at this time is a guy named Ahab. And the Bible tells us in uh, the chapter before that he's the most wicked or evil king that ever ruled Israel. And then our, our next individual that we see is Jezebel. Jezebel is the queen, and she has come to be the queen by entering into a political marriage with Ahab. She's come from the area of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, and in, in, in or Sidon or Sidon, however you want to pronounce it, and in Sidon, they, their primary religion is that of Baalism, and they also worship Asherah there, and so that's where she's come from. But for political peace, they've been married, and when Jezebel comes in, she brings in 450 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah, and she puts them on the government payroll. She basically kicks out all of the prophets and priests of Jehovah God, all those who worshipped Yahweh. They were either killed or they fled or they were simply kicked out. And there's only one left, and that's Elijah. He is the only functioning prophet of this time. And he's the only one that's willing to stand up and speak the truth. Now, some of those who had been killed might have done so as well. But Elijah is the only one that we know of. And then, interestingly and oddly enough, we'll see another character, the widow of Zarephath and her son. Now, Zarephath is actually a community in Sidon where, where uh, Jezebel was from. Now, when we start this first chapter in these first couple of verses here in 17, what you're going to see here is... Yahweh God having a confrontation, so to speak, with Ahab. He's saying, look, you're going to take your wives' gods, which is Baal. And Baal was believed to be a fertility god. Actually, both of them were a fertility god. But Baal in particular was the god of rain, the god of the storm, the one who brought the life through the rain. And so with that understanding, I want us to pick it up right there in chapter 17 of the book of first kings and let me turn there myself verse 1 and the bible tells us now elijah the tishbite from tishbe and gilead said to ahab 
As the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So we see right here that God is a sovereign God, that God is a God of judgment. You have brought in Baal and you are worshiping him. You are leading the nation to worship him. You have your people have fallen into this trap of following you and following the worship of the God Baal, who is supposedly is in charge of the rain, in charge of the storms. Let's see what a God he is. Let's see what kind of God he is. Let me tell you, the God of truth, the God of judgment, the sovereign God says, there will not be rain for three years. There will not even be dew on the ground for three years. So Elijah, God's spokesman, speaks this word to Ahab. And then he has to leave because Ahab wants to kill him. Jezebel certainly wants to kill him. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here and turn eastward and hide in the Kirith Ravine east of Jordan. You will drink from the brook that I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. And he went to the Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Here we see the sovereign God who is over everything, providing for him. And then, interestingly enough, we go to verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land, just as God had spoken. And then the word of the Lord came to him and said, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gates town, to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? And she was going to get it, he said, and also bring me a piece of bread. Now, what's really odd about this part of the story is Elijah, who is the last functioning prophet in all of Israel, is commanded by God to go into the nation where Jezebel has come from, where she has imported the pagan worshipers from, and to go there and to find a widow there, and I want you to live with her, and she's going to provide for you. And incidentally, Elijah was going to provide for her. And it's interesting that God sent him into the next country. You could make a mission sermon out of this about how God sends people into closed countries and to countries that are completely pagan and devoid of him. You, you could go a lot of different directions. But the truth of it is, it, it must have really behooved Elijah when this happened, because we know from Luke chapter four, if you went back and read Luke chapter four, the Bible tells us that there were plenty of widows in Israel and all of Israel. But for some reason, God chose this widow. Now, I would speculate, and that's all I can do. My hypothesis would be that at some point this woman said, God, show yourself to me. Show me. I, I, I know my gods are not real. I know they are empty. But if there's a true God out there, show me. We, we can see that that was probably characteristic of Rahab. You know, it's interesting throughout the Old Testament, God does this. He will use people who are in a pagan land who don't know him, who don't hear his word, who don't know anything about him. And yet God will use them. God will bless them. We see him doing that through Rahab. Uh, really, we even see him doing that through Ruth, who is not also a Jew. So it, it, it's customary. It's not uncommon for God to do that. And I don't think it's uncommon for him to do it today. And you'll hear a story about that next week, by the way. 
So we see that he is a God of grace and mercy. Here is a widow who has probably cried out, and he's a God of grace and mercy. And he provides for his servant, and he provides for her and for her son. And he's come here, and he's asked for water, and then he asked for bread. And this is the response he gets from this widow. As surely as the Lord your God lives, I, I believe that your God lives, unlike the gods of her culture. And she says this, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. You see, the drought has extended into the Phoenician area. And this is all she has left. And yet, Elisha asked for it. God asked, I, I want you to give me what you have. And she does it. He's asked that of his nation, of his people. And they've rejected him. But we see that receiving. We see that element of believing that what he's saying is true as he speaks for God. And Elisha says to her, do not be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have had and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord gives rain on the land. We see a God of grace and mercy. And she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. And for, for the, the jar was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house, became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. And she said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Do you come to me to remind me of my sin and kill my son? She's just come into a very elementary understanding of God. And she believes, but am I being judged? She doesn't question whether she sinned or not. She fully admits, I'm a sinner. She goes, am I being punished for my past sins? For the pagan practices I've participated in or whatever it is. And then we see Elisha. If she's a brand new, just coming into the faith, so to speak, seeker, Elijah is the seminary graduate. He's the Ph.D. in religion, if there is anyone. And what does Elijah do? He says, give me your son. He took him from her arms, and which indicates to us that he must have been fairly young. For him to be able to carry him upstairs and, and as she was carrying him as well. And carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on the bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? She didn't know. And now here's Mr. Um, seminary trained Ph.D. prophet going, I don't know either. You know Why? Because Elisha believed in a sovereign God. That God ultimately is in control of everything. He doesn't know. Maybe this is, maybe it's not. And then this, was, this is what occurs. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord and prayed, Oh Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. So what does he do? He takes the boy upstairs. He asks God, God, is this your will? Is this what you want? Have you, have you done this? I, I, I don't know. 
And then he goes to the boy and the boy is lying there. He's dead. And he puts his arms out. He spreads out and he puts his life upon the boy's life. And life is breathed into him. The spirit of God comes upon him. And what happens? And by the way, do you see a foreshadowing of how life will be given to us through the death of a son? So it's not his son who will pay for the sins. It's ultimately Jesus Christ, God's son, who will pay for the sin of our lives. Then Elisha cried out, and the boy's life returned to him because he is the God of the resurrection and he lived. Incidentally, this is the first time we see life restored, the first resurrection occurring. And who's it with? It's an outsider, a pagan outsider. That's who first experienced the miracle of the resurrection. And Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. And he gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And the woman said, now I know you are a man of God and the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. Because you see, he's not just a sovereign God, a God of judgment. He's not just a loving and kind God. He is the God of truth. He's not a God of taste. He's not a God that we create in our own image. He is the God of reality. He is the God of truth. You see, whatever God we have made up in our minds that we worship, if when we read Scripture or when He moves, if it doesn't ever bother us, if sometimes we can't explain it, then I really question if that's the real and true living God. If in our minds we can figure it all out, that this is how He works, He's in this box, and He never moves out of this box. He just works with His people, and this is His people only. And He's going to judge and get the rest of those folks. they got it coming, I tell you. But then when He moves out of that, just as, and if you want a good reference on this, look at Luke chapter 4, how Jesus quotes this story, which the Jews hated this story. Because it's a story about how God used a pagan to minister and to, to minister to God's prophet and keep him going when everybody else was trying to kill him. If you don't worship a God who is also grace oriented and loving and kind, and you can't understand why he opens the door so wide to receive some who are far removed from him, if you don't question that sometimes, then you may have made a small God in your mind that just sits in a box. Sometimes you ought to just think, I'm disturbed. God, what are you thinking? I can't figure you out. I can't control you. If you can control your God, then He is an idol. Just like you carved Him with wood and you've made Him in your mind. You've created God in your own image. Now, do you think that's a part of our culture? I want to show you a visual that that's exactly what we do today. Watch this. That's when the the, the search for something more than doctrine uh, started to stir within me. And I love this quote that uh, Eckhart has. Uh, This is one of my favorite quotes in uh, chapter 1, where he says, Man made God in his own image. The eternal, the infinite, and unnameable was reduced to a mental idol that you had to believe in and worship as my God or our God. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the consciousness in which the world is seen. So you believe what happens to us at death when the body dies? 
You don't have a belief. I don't give it any thought. You don't. God, in the essence of all consciousness, isn't something to believe. God is. Yes. God is. And God is a feeling experience, not a believing experience. That's right. And if, and if, you're, if that your religion is a believing experience, if God for you is still about a belief, then it's not truly God. No. That's what you're saying. Yes. Turn back with me to 1 John chapter 4, where we started this morning, where we read. Turn with me to 1 John, into the Bible, one of the last few books. 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John. Right after 1 and 2 Peter. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. By the way, Oprah calls him the great prophet of today, the greatest prophet of the day. And this is speaking specifically about prophets. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Did you you catch what he said? That man created God in his own image. Scripture tells us in Genesis 1.27 that God created us in his image. You see the uh, manipulation uh, some people thought, yeah, I think I believe that. I think I've heard that before. Continuing here in verse 3. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. Here's my question to you today. What God do you believe in? Or do you just simply think God is a feeling? Is he what you is he something that you feel? That you've concocted or that that's your taste? I believe in a God who's sovereign. This is what the scripture teach that he is sovereign and he judges sin. But he's also a God of grace and mercy and kindness. And that his kindness leads us to repentance. And I can't figure it all out. I can't give you a couple religious positions that fixes all and answers every question. Because he's bigger than a box that I can put him in. But I know this. That Jesus was God in the flesh and he came to give us life through the cross. He came and lived a perfect and sinless life. And then he claimed in John 8:58 to be God Almighty. And all who wanted forgiveness, all who want to know him, must believe and trust that he died upon a cross for our sins, to cover our sins. Because the word said there must be the shedding of blood for sins to be forgiven. So he forgave us by giving his life. And when we accept his grace and his forgiveness... We enter into a covenant of grace with Him and His blood covers us. And God sees our sin no more. I don't understand why He did that. I don't understand His methodology, but I know it's true because His Word says it. And He is God. 
See, there's a big difference. You can say, you know what, all religions are basically the same. Can I tell you? That's what that passage right here says. Hey, they're not all the same. There's a big difference to somebody who denies that God, that Jesus is God and that he's the way to salvation. There's a big difference between Islam. There's a big difference uh, between even Judaism. There's a big difference between Buddhism, Hinduism. Why? Because they don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and that salvation comes through him. It's a big difference. Question is, what belief are you ascribing to? Have you received the true and living God, the person of Jesus Christ and his salvation? If not, I invite you to today. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world of pluralism, of syncretism. One that is more guarded by taste than truth. I pray, Lord, that we would look to your word to find truth and not to what we feel and to what we think. Because that is continually changing. It is what the evil one desires of us. Lord, I pray that today, for anyone who doesn't know you, that they would come to a place where they recognize they are a sinner and they need forgiveness. And that it is through Jesus forgiveness is granted. Lord, I pray today that you would draw men to you. And we will give you the praise and the glory. In your name I pray. Amen.